The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. After 23 years in prison, Adnan Syed walked out of the courthouse in Baltimore, smiling but silent as his supporters cheered. The 41-year-old was free for the first time since he was a teenager, convicted of the murder of his high school girlfriend. This is a prepaid call from Adnan Syed. His case captured the attention of millions in 2014 on the hit podcast Serial, which raised doubts about his guilt. A judge ordered Syed's release after prosecutors said a new investigation uncovered evidence that undermines his conviction. Our reinvestigation revealed that the original prosecutors and the subsequent prosecutors in the attorney general's office failed to disclose relevant information about alternative suspects, one of whom threatened to kill the victim. And then on Tuesday, prosecutors took the final step and dropped the charges against Syed. His lawyer, Erica Suter, is my guest. She's an assistant public defender in Maryland and director of the University of Baltimore's Innocence Project Clinic. Erica, what was it like for him walking out of the courthouse after spending more than half his life in prison? Well, in the courtroom, you know, he turned to me, Adnan turned to me and said that he couldn't believe it was real. I think walking out the courtroom was probably pretty overwhelming, and it was overwhelming to me there were so many so many people and so many cameras. So, you know, I think it was overwhelming. And he heard a friend, somebody who had been incarcerated with him, who had been exonerated, call his name. And that's when you see him look up and smile and wave, which was kind of one of the only times that he was, you know, sort of engaged. So how did you become his attorney? Well, I've been practicing post-conviction law in Maryland for about 15 years. And when his case was sort of last before the court, you know, I was following it like everyone else and, you know, paying attention because of my interest and in sort of the legal and procedural posture. And then as that process ran down and he had reached sort of the natural conclusion of those things, you know, it was time for him to find another attorney to sort of pursue whatever might remain. And Rabia Chowdhury, who's been a longtime advocate of his and a family friend of his, you know, sought me out and approached me about taking the case. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you weren't looking to overturn the case as much as get him out under another law? So, no, we were always looking to overturn the case. We've always believed in his innocence. He's always maintained his innocence. And so as a post-conviction lawyer, you're sort of looking at what are all the potential tools in the toolkit to try to achieve relief for this client. And so one possible way to do that was to seek relief through sentencing modification um, through the recently passed Juvenile Restoration Act. So this particular path that we're on now did, in fact, begin with a conversation with the Sentencing Review Unit. But we were always looking at sort of all of our options. But yes, this particular sort of piece in a very long journey 
began with, with having this conversation with Assistant uh, State's Attorney Becky Feldman. So he had several appeals, and at one point an appeals court vacated his conviction, but then it was reinstated? Yes. Yeah, so his sort of procedural history is, is interesting and long, and what happened was, in terms of the post-conviction, is that he had filed a post-conviction, so, you know, after your sentence, you have the right to go back and allege ineffective assistance of counsel. And Maryland in particular has very clear procedure. You're guaranteed a hearing. It has to be filed within 10 years, and you're sort of attacking the process. So he did that in post-conviction and lost, and then filed what we call an application for leave to appeal. So you don't have a direct right of appeal. You have the right to request permission to appeal. And it got remanded back. And then he did what we call in Maryland a motion to reopen. So he's basically in post-conviction posture again. And he won a new trial based on this cell phone evidence that incoming calls were not reliable for location because the cell phone evidence corroborated really the only evidence against him, which was the testimony of the cooperating co-defendant. So co-defendant's testimony evolves. He's an incentivized witness. It contradicts, you know, in various points. So they've got this, you know, alleged forensic evidence. And in that post-conviction, post-conviction counsel demonstrated that that evidence wasn't reliable. The state then appealed to the Court of Special Appeals, which is our intermediate appellate court. And they reversed on the cell phone, saying that issue was waived because it wasn't raised in the initial post-conviction And then they granted relief on the alibi issue, saying that Christina Gutierrez, trial counsel, was ineffective for failing to investigate this alibi witness who said that she was with him at the library in the relevant time period. So he twice won a new trial in these two different levels of court. And then the state appealed again to our highest court, Maryland's essentially Supreme Court. And then they reversed and said that although it was ineffective, for post-conviction counsel to not have investigated the alibi, given all of the evidence, there was no prejudice. So there was a mistake, but it wasn't significant enough to show, you know, that the result would have been different. And then he filed cert with the Supreme Court. Supreme Court didn't grant cert, and that's where that process ended. A real roller coaster for him, up and down with these appeals. Or, or, I mean, I think it was incredibly difficult to go through actually winning a new trial and sort of having, I mean, if you're always against the odds in this procedural posture, you necessarily lose more than you win just because of the emphasis on finality and the fact that the burden is on the moving parties, is on the defendant in this case. So you always lose. So when you win, it is, it's incredible. And to have that taken back was extraordinarily difficult for him, for sure. Tell us about the recent investigation, which you took part in, where prosecutors found in the trial folder, evidence, documents that were never turned over to his prior attorneys. So the investigation that happened over the past year was really a collaborative effort between the defense and the state. And Assistant State's Attorney Becky Feldman went and looked through every trial box and copied a whole lot of documents and handed them over to the defense. And, you know, we both reviewed them, and that's where we found this this note that had not been turned over to trial counsel, that had not been turned over to prior post-conviction counsel. And it was pretty startling to, to see it. Tell us about the note. So it is a handwritten note that 
um, because it's an ongoing investigation, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but what is part of the public record is the fact that it contained a threat against the victim, that the person about whom this note was talking said, the suspect said he would make her disappear, the victim, he would kill her. And under our system of laws, under the obligation of the state, that is information that the defense is entitled to use to defend themselves. And Nan never had it. For 20 years. For 23 years. 23 years. And they're saying that there are two possible alternative suspects, and they also have been alternative suspects for 23 years? Um, so with re- – well, yes, I, I guess that's fair to say. Um, they are people who are involved in this case. They're not brand-new people that nobody's ever heard of. They are people who – are connected to this case in some way. Exactly how much attention the investigators at the time or the prosecution at the time were paying to them, I don't know. Whether or not the prosecution believed they were viable suspects at the time, I don't know. I certainly think the prosecution should have looked at them closer, examined them further, you know, at least developed them further. But they were known to the state for sure. The prosecutors asked that his conviction be vacated, but didn't say that your client is innocent. So, you know, the public often looks at innocence cases and thinks that they're sort of, you know, a straight line. You find the thing, the smoking gun, and then your person is exonerated. The reality is exonerations are incredibly difficult because they require a particular kind of evidence. So someone may very well be innocent. But for example, if they were convinced based on one person's word, it can be very difficult to actually exonerate that person. You know, you're not going to necessarily have the thing that points to the other person. You know, this law, the ability for the state to move to vacate is relatively new. It got passed in 2019, actually with support of the state's attorney's office. And it was created in part because we had in, in Baltimore City specifically the Gun Trace Task Force, which we now know was a group of very corrupt police officers who were planting evidence, who were robbing people, selling drugs, all all sorts of nefarious things. So with the Gun Trace Task Force cases, there was such an obvious problem that convictions based on the testimony of these extraordinarily corrupt officers ought not to stand. And so what the statute requires is evidence or information that is new to the state that causes them to lose faith in the integrity of the verdict. And that's really important that, you know, the state is looking at whether this was a fair opportunity, whether the state, you know, played fair as they were supposed to. And in Adnan's case, for sure, the evidence is overwhelming that the state did not. There was a DNA analysis done. Yes. So, we initially, in March, filed a joint motion for DNA testing. Testing began, and basically in consultation with the scientists, we identified of the evidence what was most likely to yield information that was going to give us information about whoever, the actual assailant, right? So we looked at all the evidence, and based on the facts we know about the case, and under the advisement of scientists, selected the evidence that we thought were most likely to yield information about a suspect. And we tested all of that. And the results were that none of it came back to Adnan. There are a couple of more items remaining, but we triaged them. So we sort of identified 
these are the most important. These are the ones that I think would yield the most valuable information. We went through all of that. And then there are a couple of more items remaining that we're waiting for the results to come back on. But in the grand scenario of all of the evidence, we've already tested what we thought was sort of the most significant. Serial, of course, became this pop culture sensation. How did that change the equation for him? I mean, I think that's a really interesting question that a lot of people want to know about, and it's very difficult to say. What I think in general in Adnan's case is that it contextualizes a person and it brings light to a scenario that is actually common, for example, that prosecutors withhold evidence that they should turn over. So it sort of contextualizes a person as more of a full human being who's more than their conviction, and it educates the public. To the extent that it impacts the judges, I think it's a double-edged sword. Judges are serious folks trying to do their job. I don't think they particularly appreciate some of the distractions that can come with the media attention, but it also creates a level of transparency that I think can be helpful in our judicial system, because these kinds of cases, they often die in the dark. Like all the odds are stacked against you. Nobody's paying attention. The court wants to leave the conviction intact. And now there's sort of a degree of attention and transparency that maybe shifts the needle a little bit more to a more level playing field. I can't imagine being a post-conviction lawyer because it sounds like you know, it's just such an uphill battle every minute of the day. So what does this mean to you, you know, his release? You know, the victories are few and far between in this work, but the victories are so incredibly sweet. And it is what sustains you in this work, because they are always long-fought battles. So, you know, on a personal level, this is a human being who's been incarcerated since he was a child, taken from his family for 23 years, who spent his entire adult life in prison in a cell. And to see him you know, restored to his family is to have the privilege of playing a part in that and being able to give somebody back to their family is is extraordinary. In terms of post-conviction, you savor the wins because they're, they're few and far between. Thanks so much for joining us, Erica. That's Erica Souter, an assistant public defender in Maryland and director of the University of Baltimore's Innocence Project Clinic. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm proud that the Obama-Biden administration stood up for dreamers. My predecessor tried to end DACA, but the Biden-Harris administration is working to preserve it and fortify it. I want to make clear to the dreamers who are here and those who are watching from home, this is your home. This is your home. And we see you, and you are not alone. Despite promises from the Biden administration, the lives of dreamers remain in limbo, and a federal appeals court has dealt another blow to their legal status. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is an Obama-era program preventing the deportation of hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought into the United States as children. It's had a complicated ride through federal court challenges. 
And now the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that the program contradicts federal immigration law and must go back to a Texas federal judge for a new review of the Biden administration's recent rule codifying the program. Current DREAMers will retain their status for now. But the Fifth Circuit ruling highlights the precarious nature of DREAMers' protections despite historically bipartisan support for their cause. My guest is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Start by telling us about this Fifth Circuit decision. Well, the Fifth Circuit decision is very interesting because it melds a lot of different concepts all into one decision. But basically what it says is that DACA is illegal, but we're not going to end the program immediately because we're going to go back to the district court to decide whether a new DACA rule that was issued by the federal government while the original DACA case was pending changes something so that it makes the program converted from being illegal to legal. Tell us about the specifics of the decision. So the specifics of the decision, there's four basic aspects to the decision two of which will not change and two of which will be examined in the district court. So the two that will not change moving forward are, first, that the state of Texas has standing to actually challenge DACA. That was an interesting question with regard to whether they could even do this. And that argument actually had two parts. One, that Texas, even though it claimed that it suffered financial loss from having undocumented people in Texas, the government was saying, well, but that loss is outweighed by all of the economic benefits that having these individuals creates to Texas. And the court said, no, we don't do this cost-benefit analysis. If you show cost, that's the end. That's all you have to show for standing. You don't have to show that the costs outweigh the benefits. So, That's one part of it. But secondly, there had been a decision in the Supreme Court earlier this year which said that you can't ask for injunctive relief in an immigration case unless you are one person in one case. You can't ask as a group or a state or anybody else for broad injunctive relief. And that came up in the Remain in Mexico case. And what the Fifth Circuit held, and we'll see if the Supreme Court agrees with this, is That's not true when all you're trying to do is vacate a memo, like what's happening here, where they were trying to vacate the DACA memo. That's not an injunction. An injunction is don't do something. Here they were asking for just vacate a memo, say that the memo is illegal. And so the courts are going to have to decide, or the Supreme Court's going to have to decide, is that true? Is that a distinction without a difference? Or is that really a distinction that's real, which is one thing is an injunction, saying the government's not allowed to do something, and another thing is just vacating a memo for it being illegal. So that's the first thing they decided, was this issue of can they get to court? They said, yes, you can get to court. The second thing they decided was, was the memo itself illegal because it didn't go through the formal rulemaking process? And they held, yes, the memo itself was illegal because they didn't go through the formal rulemaking process. They said this memo actually confers benefits onto people in terms of work permits and in terms of the ability to say that you're lawfully here. And so because it does that, you can't just do that with a memo. You have to go through the formal rulemaking process. And so there, 
the memo was stricken. And so those two things, I think, are not going to change regardless. So those are the parts of the decision that are over for now. Tell us about what the federal judge is going to be reviewing. Now, the next question is, well, the government now in the middle of this case went through the formal rulemaking process. And so that is now mooting out the issue of the memo. So we're never going to get to this memo issue ever again. And the issue is going to be whether the formal rules that the government has now put in place with regard to DACA, which is basically identical to the memo, it does the same thing, it gives the same people status, whether that formal rule is going to be illegal. And here the court previewed what they're likely going to rule in the future by saying, well, there's two points here that we think about the memo that we'll see if we think it about the rule. We're not going to say anything yet, but here are our two points. Number one, the memo itself contravenes the INA, the Immigration Code, by saying that people get status that the Immigration Code doesn't say get status, and that people get work benefits that the Immigration Code doesn't say get work benefits. So the second you do that, you're contravening the Immigration Code, and that's the end of it. Now, there's always been arguments about that the regular, that the, uh, that the, the statute says that the Attorney General, which is now the Secretary of Homeland Security, because that changed after 9-11, can confer work authorization to whoever they want to confer it to, and can choose who to deport or not to deport. But the Fifth Circuit has said, no, no, no. Once you start creating a program of, you know, a million people or whatever to specifically exempt based on a certain criteria and specifically give work permits, you're contravening the statute. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing the court said is, based on the new logic of the West Virginia versus EPA decision, which just came out also earlier this year, which says it was a huge decision that basically shrank the entire regulatory state dramatically, because what it said was, if you're going to do something of significant economic importance, then the thing you're doing regulatorily has to be something that's very clear in the statute. It has to be, you can't just say, here's a provision and it's not inconsistent with this. It's kind of, Congress has to kind of be making a very clear signal that they want you to do this. And so they're saying because of that new West Virginia versus EPA decision, DACA is also illegal because there's nothing that Congress said which puts us anywhere near saying create a program like DACA. And so those are the four prongs of the decision. And so now what the court said is, but we're not going to end DACA today. Go back to district court and tell us whether we're right about the new rule. Does the new rule do anything different or does it fail for the same two reasons, which are that it contravenes the statute and that it regulates in a place where there's not clear regulatory authority. And if it does, we'll strike it then. And then it'll be up to the Supreme Court to determine what happens next. Would you say this is not a good development for the Dreamers? Because it sounds like it's a legal question. The Fifth Circuit is sending to the lower court judge, and this judge already ruled once that DACA was unconstitutional. Correct. What this means is that they're sending back basically the same legal question they just answered in the memo case and basically asking the district court, does this new regulation, this new rule, do anything different than the memo? 
And if it does something different than the memo, tell us that maybe then the DACA recipients win. But if it doesn't, then the DACA recipients lose. And the truth of the matter is, the whole point of the regulation was just to eliminate the notice and comment argument. It wasn't to change anything else. And so I would say with 99.99999% certainty that the district court and the Fifth Circuit are going to invalidate the rule. And then what happens? It goes to the Supreme and Court? Then the case, right. And then the case will go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court will finally have to decide whether the DACA program under the new rule violates the Immigration and Nationality Act, either on its face, because, you know, you can't give work authorization to categories of people that the statute doesn't provide, or whether it violates this new West Virginia versus EPA doctrine, which says that even if the code basically doesn't disallow it, it doesn't, for a question of this major importance, prompt regulation in this matter so that you can't actually regulate in this matter because it's a question of such economic importance that Congress would have had to have given some indication that it wanted the agency to regulate in this area. Leon, are any other circuit courts considering DACA questions? No. Right now, there's nothing else going on. This is the only show in town because the original case, that was the DACA case that went up to the Supreme Court was the issue of the Ninth Circuit saying that the Trump DACA revocation memo was illegal. Now, there are these challenges in the Second Circuit in New York called Bataya Vidal. But in the Bataya Vidal case, the courts have now said, look, we're not going to invalidate the Fifth Circuit decision. That's what the litigants wanted there is they wanted basically dueling decisions that would invalidate the Fifth Circuit decision and basically force the Supreme Court's hand, and the courts in New York did not want to do that. Basically, the DACA program is going to be legal until either the Fifth Circuit says, okay, we're lifting the stay that currently exists right now for existing DACA holders to have DACA, which they haven't done yet, or the Supreme Court says, well, we've now looked at this and we've decided for the whole country that DACA is illegal. And so now everyone who had DACA status loses that status as of this decision. So Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, who said before the ruling came out, this could change everything, was wrong? Well, it could change everything, but maybe not at that second. The question is when it will change everything. So If DACA is ultimately ruled to be illegal in one of two forms, either in form one by the Fifth Circuit coming back and ruling it illegal and lifting the stay, which is there's currently a stay from invalidating the DACA program nationally. If the Fifth Circuit lifts the stay or if the Supreme Court, even though there was a stay, now says, well, now we've decided the issue. So now there's no issue of a stay anymore. And we've decided the issue, and upon deciding the issue, DACA is illegal, then yes, that changes everything. That that ends the DACA program. And at that point, all of the people who had DACA, the 700,000 individuals, lose any protections or work authorizations that they had. And at that point, we're back in square one, where, where nobody who was previously undocumented has any status.
So let's just say the Supreme Court declares DACA is invalid. Isn't it up to the administration at the time and the Department of Homeland Security to decide whether or not to deport DREAMers? Well, correct. Then that will then that will actually link up with another case that's in the Supreme Court right now, which is which is going to be argued in December, and that's a case about prosecutorial discretion. And there, there actually is an injunction currently in place where the state of Texas has successfully limited the ability of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office to have a memo that has prosecutorial discretion. Now, this will be very interesting whether the court actually keeps that. I believe that this will end up like Remain in Mexico, where once the court actually examines this, they will say, well, wait a second, why are we getting involved in ICE's prosecutorial discretion memo writing? You know, aren't we getting a little too detailed into what the agency is and isn't doing? But if they also say that the agency can't have a prosecutorial discretion memo either, then it will actually be tougher because then at that point, individual ICE officers will have the discretion to remove whoever they want. And that could include DACA recipients at that point. DACA is this issue that supposedly cuts across party lines, but Republicans are holding up any kind of DACA legislation because they want to barter for border security. John Cornyn said, until we get the border under control, it's not possible to deal with some of these other issues where there is bipartisan consensus. So that's just sort of tit for tat. You give us this and we'll give you that. Well, this has been the complication of the issue of the dreamers for a long time. And that is that when people talk about legalizing the status of the dreamers, the alternative argument is, well, how do we know that 10 years from now there won't be another million dreamers? And that's an interesting question. It's a certainly powerful rhetorical statement. And so when people say, okay, well, in exchange for legalizing the dreamers, we have to basically make all of the enforcement changes in the immigration code that Democrats have traditionally insisted could only be made in exchange for legalizing everybody. That's why you never get a deal here, because the proportions of the deal never sinks in, meaning the Democrats want to legalize the dreamers for some more limited enforcement, knowing that the entire bucket of enforcement should be traded for the legalization of everybody. But if the Republicans say, but if you don't do the entire bucket of enforcement, there will even be a million more dreamers. So you don't even solve the dreamer problem. This is why you never get a deal just on the dreamers. What do you mean there'll be a million more dreamers? Meaning here's the problem. There are certain things everybody agrees upon that if you do them, they will end undocumented immigration pretty much by 90, 95%. So the first thing you would do is you would make employers when they hired somebody, now instead of using the current I-9 system, which is very easy to gain, which is that somebody, all they have to do is show you a social security card and an identification, now you would be able to, you would be required, for instance, to take their picture, and then you take the picture of the individual, and that picture gets run through all the facial recognition systems that the government now has, and the government can now tell you whether that employee is legal or not. That new kind of employment verification, coupled with what would be known as asylum reform, which would basically say that 
anybody who's seeking asylum through the southern border would have to either wait outside the United States or in some facility or something, but, but simply couldn't wait in the interior of the United States while their case was pending. If you were to put those two things together, you would basically have a dramatic, if not complete, end to undocumented immigration in the United States. But the point is, if you did that and you traded it just for the legalization of the dreamers, many Democrats say, well, then there will be nothing that ends up getting the other 10 million people who are here without statistics. Those people will now end up having to be deported or leave because now you've put in the whole enforcement framework without legalizing them. So what they say is, well, let's do you know some lesser measures, either on asylum or on something else, that don't completely take out the 100% problem because that trade needs to be made for all 11 million. And so that's why you don't get this agreement is because neither side can agree upon what is the proper trade for legalizing the dreamers. And so that's the problem because what the Republicans say is if you don't completely eliminate un unlawful work in the United States and this asylum issue where people can come to the border, ask for asylum, and then stay in the country, then you will continue to have waves of undocumented immigration, which will create new dreamers. And so you don't even solve the dreamer problem by passing the DREAM Act. You just create a new wave of dreamers that you'll have to address 10 years from now. Thanks so much, Leon. That's immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.